0: Welcome to a special episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. We did a few of these in season one when they're topics that I think are worth exploring for a deeper dive, or maybe we've had, you know, audience, audience requested topics. Um, so today, um, today's episode is also sponsored by BeatBread, which that's who and what we're going to be talking about. Um, but I just want to share um, some partner info um, on Beat Bread first. So BeatBread is a pioneering music and finance company that empowers artists to take control of their careers without giving away ownership of their music or their decision-making power. BeatBread brings together a team with deep experience in music, finance, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to create new opportunities for artists. BeatBread provides independent and unsigned artists with financial advances that are repaid through a limited share of revenues from streaming and airplay over a period of the artist's choosing. BeatBread's funding platform leverages its proprietary cord cash AI technology and millions of dollars from BeatBread's investor network, as well as institutional funds to provide advances that let artists and labels control their marketing and and distribution partners while maintaining ownership of their underlying intellectual property. Get funding, stay in control. So we're going to dig in on what that all means. And to do so, I'm super excited to introduce Matthew Tilley, Head of Artists and Industry Development at Beebred. I almost added an R to your last name, but clearly it's Tilly. Welcome, Matthew.
1: Yes. Fantastic. Hello, Emily.
0: Awesome. So how, how's your morning been? We're just starting a, a new week as we record this.
1: Uh, it's fabulous. I'm normally based in uh, sort of the New York, New Jersey area, but I'm lucky enough to be in Miami right now, which uh, in where are we? Late February is not a terrible place to be. So
0: no, where? Uh, if you don't mind me asking, where in Miami? I actually lived there um, at one point. Oh, I'm
1: in, I'm in Edgewater right now.
0: Okay, beautiful. Well, it's yeah. very cold up here in New York, so <laughs> enjoy it.
1: I will. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. So the past few years have been an incredibly trying time for all of us. You started at BeatBread in July 2020. So just a few years after or a few years, a few months after the pandemic started. So what drew you to BeatBread after decades at, at major labels, albeit that you also have a strong background in technology as well?
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> That's a very nice way that you put it. Uh, unfortunately, my time at Universal Music had come to an end a few months before. We don't need to dig into that too much. It's the second time I've been corporately resized, I guess you'd say. Um, and so, and Peter, who's the founder, who we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about more, uh, had talked to me about this idea. We were both working at Universal together. I was working, so I was working for him at Universal, and he talked to me about this idea. Uh, and we both ended up using, leaving Universal around the same time. And he was sort of kind of building it in the background. And uh, I put him in touch with a few people who I thought could be helpful. And I made a few suggestions. And he sent me over some materials to look at. And we got to a point where I was sort of talking to him every day. And then he said, you should, you should probably join the team at this point. So um, it was sort of, it was just kind of obvious um, that it was, there are lots of, great things about it. And I love working with Peter and the, I think the idea is fantastic, but uh, it was also just one of those situations of, of circumstance and timing that just made it, you know, slot in perfectly into what I needed in my life. So.
0: Wow. I love that. I mean, I don't want to project onto you, but personally, I feel like getting laid off. Um, I'm not saying you got fired, you know, I've been fired before, like for me, it's always led to more opportunities. In fact, when I Um, was living in Miami. I was working for a new division, like a half a billion dollar division of Live Nation. And going into it, I was like, this is either going to be the biggest thing ever or a big disaster. But if it's a disaster, it'll be a great learning experience. Um, We were laid off seven months into it. um, And that's when I started my first company in in 2008. So to me, those those situations uh, tend to breed opportunity. It's like you can kind of reset and be like, oh, wait, this is actually what I want to be what I
1: want to be doing. So. I've said to other people when I've been in corporate situations when they've they've been being laid off, I've said, look, just from experience, I've never seen someone go through this and a year later not say, Do you know what I actually turned out to be the best thing ever? Almost everybody finds something different or better or just readjust their life or you know, it just seems to work out, right? I I, I don't know, maybe maybe I just work with lucky people who work hard, but it it just, you know, I've not seen anybody get laid off from a corporate job and, and, you know, be homeless or something a year later. Everybody, everybody finds a way to make it work. And often they find something that was better than what they had. So.
0: Yeah. Agreed. And I, I think, you know, what you guys have done is so interesting because, you know, you have so much experience, you could have just gone to work at another label um but in the meantime you know beatbread's tagline slash kind of what what's on the website is get funding stay in control keep ownership of your recordings advances from 1000 us dollars to 2 million us dollars so what is beatbread and how do the advances while maintaining ownership of one's recordings work
1: so i always like to start by saying what we're not because i think that's really important to clarify that we're not a label we're not a distributor And we don't offer any kind of services. We are purely a funding platform for artists. Um, And we use data science to determine what what we think an artist's future earnings are going to be. And then we make advances against that based on some very sort of very... It's a very complex algorithm, but kind of based on some simple rules and the rules are, you know, the algorithm outputs a range of numbers. The artist gets some choices to make about how long they want the deal to be and whether they want to include future work and whether they need to retain a portion of their income. Um, but once the numbers have been output by the system, the artist can make a choice about the kind of deal they want, but there's no negotiation, right? It's not the typical haggling of like, well, well I, you know, can I get this much? Or, well, we can only give you that royalty rate. It's like, we lay out a whole bunch of different options for them and they pick one. And that's, that's that. And we, the, the legal structure of the deals, we're actually purchasing their revenue in advance. So we're not taking any ownership or licensing position over the music. So we're kind of buying their revenue for a certain period of time. Um, And think of it as working capital for artists, right? We're not in the catalog buyout business yet. (laughs) That may be a a product extension at some point coming reasonably soon in the future. Um, But what I'm saying is, you know, you see these deals in the the newspaper, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen sells his catalog for $500 million or whatever it was. We're not in that business of like an artist is reaching towards the end of their career and they want to get the biggest amount of money and, and kind of, you know, walk away from the whole thing. This is much more like... You know, I've released two albums but now I need to fund the next one or I'm going on tour and I need hundred thousand dollars or I need to make some videos and as you said that the range is from thousand dollars up to two million dollars so we're sometimes advancing you know a kid in his bedroom who's using fifteen hundred dollars to go and buy a beat from a producer and we're sometimes advancing a seven figure sum to somebody who wants to, is actually using some some cases they've used it to buy out of the record deals they're in in other cases they've used it to fund you know that next phase of their career, whatever it is.
0: Or maybe buy a home, right? It doesn't even yep. necessarily have to be career specific. Yep. And I, you know, I've really um, been an advocate for artists owning their rights. At the same time, I've done plenty of lucrative, you know, publishing deals where someone is making a major life decision. So, you know, one of the things that's so groundbreaking about what you guys are doing is, you know, they don't have to give up, you know, any portion of their copyright, no matter what they need that funding for. Right. Exactly. I love it. So, tell us about the background. You know um, of uh, you know the founders and the principles behind Beat Bread. I mean, you know what what I think is so interesting too is um, I just love that your music specific, right? Because it, it could be one thing for an artist to be sitting around like, okay, you know, I need some more funding for touring or recording or life or whatever. You know, try taking that to a bank. Right, like here are right. my protections, you know. Um, right. But yeah, tell us about you know your background and how you guys uh, came up with Beet Bread.
1: Yeah, so I've been at my, my background is it, there's there's is it, I'm not, I was about to say it's not very interesting. I got stories for days about traveling around the world with Katy Perry and Jared Leto and John Bon Jovi and all those fun things that I did when I was working at major labels. But that none of that really has anything to do with the Beet Bread story. The Beet Bread story is much more closely connected to Peter Sinclair, who's our, the founder and my boss. So Peter calls himself an accidental participant in the music business. Um, And there's a few of us at the company who've worked at record labels most of our lives. Peter hadn't. Um, He worked at a bunch of different startups in various fields. He did one selling flowers directly from the field to consumers, one in a consumer finance company called Green Dot, um, and a couple of other things. He got headhunted to work at Universal about seven years ago now, I guess. And specifically, they were looking for somebody who didn't have any music business experience. Um, and he was brought in to sort of put together and build what they called the consumer engagement division. And if I can just take a detour for a second, just to explain what that was. So 20 years ago, right, the record company would sell a CD to Target or Walmart or whoever it was, and the, that store would sell a CD to the fan, and the company and the record company and the fan never had any connection, right? Over time. Record Label or Universal specifically started to realize that through artists' websites, their email lists, maybe they were running their merchandise stores, maybe they were doing some VIP ticketing, they were starting to actually have connections with fans. But they were sort of spread out all over the company. So I think it was 2015, Peter got hired to come in and and they said, look, can you take this idea that all these little individual areas we have where we have contact with the fan and bring it all under one division and see if you can actually do something with that um, and it was, you know, we called the the amount of money it was making a rounding error at Universal. Like it was such a such a tiny amount of money um, that it was almost almost irrelevant. But there was a wealth of data there on fans and connections and and different things you could sell to different people. We we know this person. We know they like such and such, so maybe they'll like this as well. And me, you know, all that sort of stuff. So Peter came in, built that division. That's where I got to work with him. Uh, We did that for about five years. And um, one of the things he noticed was the number of artists who didn't want to use any of those services that were on offer, right? Which to him was really strange. His viewpoint was, well, you signed with Universal, the biggest, arguably best record label in the world. You've given up a whole bunch of things to sign that, right? You give up rights to your music. You give up a large portion of your income. you, You give up kind of having a say in certain things. You give up quite a lot when you're when you're a small artist who's just signing and the bigger artists have more power in that relationship. But you give up a lot. But in exchange, you get all these things that can actually help you out. Well, he was very surprised to to see that lots of the artists didn't want to use any of the services. They already had their own merch person. They had somebody who ran their CRM for them. They had their own VIP ticketing team. They had their own. And he was just confused that. As I said, so he would sort of ask around for you know for advice and coaching, and he was ended up talking to the president of one of the fairly significant labels at at Universal, and was saying, "I don't understand." And they said, "No, no, you're doing fine. This is quite normal. It's you know nothing, nothing to be surprised by." And he sort of pressed on it, and the guy said to him, "Look." If I'm being honest with you, some of the bigger artists don't even want to use the course, you're sort of operating the ancillary services. Some of them don't want to even want to use our core services at the label, they have their own PR person, they have their own digital marketing team. These absolutely central things to their marketing. They're also doing them themselves. Peter blurted out to this guy, are we just a check to some of these people? And the the gentleman in question sort of laughed at him in a slightly paternalistic fashion, just like, oh, well, you've kind of just figured it out. And that was literally the sort of light bulb moment in his head of, well, if some artists just, the only reason they go to a label is for the funding, then surely there's a better way to get them the funding, right? And that doesn't mean that labels aren't important, and it certainly doesn't mean that services aren't important. But if an artist already knows where they want to get those services from, then going to a label just to get the funding doesn't seem to make any sense to us. Right. So that was the, where the idea was born. Shall I keep going? Because this is the story. No, the story continues.
0: Let me pause you for one second and just say that is yeah. so interesting. Um, because, yeah, I, I I love it because I can see it in my brain. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, Late, you know, labels, major labels absolutely are a check to a lot of artists, but you're exactly right. They're giving up their rights in perpetuity. And it's so brilliant what you guys are doing, because you're like, well, let us just solve that one piece and then you can do whatever you want, right. you know, every everywhere else. Um, yeah, I just I think that's right. which well, I know what I was gonna say too. Um yeah. looking at where the industry is and where it's going, right? Because I think I saw on your website, and and we could do a deeper dive on this too, like, you know, there's 5,000, I'm going to mess up this stat, but like if there were 5,000 artists five or 10 years ago that had over 10,000, you know, monthly Spotify listeners or whatever, now it's 30,000 and in 10 years, it's going to be a hundred thousand. So yeah, you guys are just scaling, solving that problem, but sorry, please continue. I think it's so interesting.
1: No, that that's right. There's an exploding middle class of artists, and the the labels wouldn't even if the labels you know wanted to sign them all. They just don't have the capacity to sign them all, right? So now they're springing up this world of of individual service companies who offer digital marketing or radio promotion or Spotify promotion, whatever those things are. We just think the artist is probably better served when they make as many choices individually as they can, right? You go and get a bundle of stuff, so you bundle all your services and your distribution and your funding all in one place you might be getting a suboptimal offering from one of them or just not the best person to work with you, right? You get paired up with a bunch of people at the label to work with. They may just not be a fit. So I think if you have the the time and ability to make those choices individually, uh, you'll probably be better served. Anyway, so Peter had this idea. The next thing he did was went and found a data scientist. His co-founder, John Harler, um, is a very experienced data scientist, but never worked in music before. He built models in insurance markets and energy markets and all sorts of different things. Peter licensed a big data set from what's now called Illuminate, was called Nielsen at the time. Basically gave it to John and a couple of his guys and said, okay, here, here's all the data on artists and their streaming. Can you go model? An artist's future streaming income, and it took them several months, and they back tested it thirty thousand times, and they came back and they said, "Yeah, we can confidently predict artist's future streaming income." Now, clearly, it's to do with having a group of artists, right? On an in on every, will we be exactly right on every individual artist? No, of course not. But if you take, we're about six hundred and fifty advances in. If you take those six hundred and fifty advances that we've made and aggregate them you look at what our algorithm had predicted their streams would be, and then you look at where their streams actually are, we're within 4%. Yeah. Now, clearly some are way over and some are way under, right? But in the aggregate, we're within 4%. Now, what that enables you to do, well, let me back up a second. I think most people watching this or listening to this will probably know that the record company model is essentially based on signing a bunch of artists, knowing that a lot of them will not succeed one or two will do okay, and then one, maybe, or two will have phenomenal outsized success, and that will pay for all the others, right? That means that the deal has got to be unfair in favor of the record company because their strike rate's relatively low. The one that succeeds has to pay for all the others, which means the record company has to be taking an outsized share of the pie, right? Most of our deals make money, right? And the goal, therefore, is to make a little bit of money on every deal because when they're all going to make money, or ninety-five percent of our deals are going to make money, you we can take we can afford to take much smaller share of the pie than the labels can. So hopefully, it's just a you know fairer, more transparent, uh, easier source of funding for artists to to help build their careers.
0: I love that. And doesn't have Peter some sort have some sort of background in like prepaid debit cards as well.
1: Yeah. So Green Dot, which I mentioned a few minutes ago that that he used to work at, the problem they set out to solve was uh, um, people who can't get bank accounts. And that's actually more likely to be people who've been bankrupted in America than it is than it is illegal immigrants, actually. But but anyway, there's a class of people who can't get bank accounts before, you know direct debit and all those things became more common, they were having getting paid by check. They were having to take their check to the check cashing guy on the corner, and they were paying anywhere between 8 and 12% just, just to get paid effectively, right? And Green Dot looked at that and said, there's got to be a better way of doing this. They came up with that prepaid debit card idea exactly that you can now pick up in Walgreens or wherever, and the ability to load your paycheck directly onto that. And I think Green Dot was taking 3 or 4%. And again, a similar idea, right? It's a, a, a large community that's not being served particularly well. If you serve them better, you can actually make money from that what and, and also benefit the consumer at the same time. And we like to think that's what we're doing at Beebred, right? Is that she just, we, we're going to do okay from it because we're making a little bit of money on all these deals, but we're giving artists more choice and more flexibility at the same time.
0: So I love that. A, a win-win. Yeah i th- I thought that was a really important part of the story because there is that unique scalable finance piece. but then i d- I actually didn't realize that Peter was brought into universal. so i'm I think it's really important. I mean, obviously, like you have decades of music industry experience, but I think it's so brilliant that, um, you know, Peter comes from another field, but then he gained all of this um, you know, experience in in music in our field to really work on um, solving that problem. So I love that. Yeah.
1: And then I was able to, I said, he he sort of had brought this idea up to me and I said, oh, there's two guys you absolutely have to meet. And um, one was a guy called Colin Finkelstein, who was the COO at EMI for a long time and understands, I think, the, the economics of how a record deal works better than anybody. Um, and the other was a guy called Phil Wilde, who was our head of business affairs at EMI, who has written all of our contracts and, and really helped sort of guide us through the legal minefield. So, you know, it was Peter's very smart in a number of ways, and one of them is knowing what he doesn't know, right, yeah. and knowing who he needs on the team to, to be able to make things happen. So Colin and Phil have been giving us great advice since since before we started, actually.
0: Yeah, and to me, it's very simple. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not a data scientist, and I wouldn't necessarily know how to project, you know, every sub-revenue stream on Tidal and Apple and everything else. But at the same time, um, in the book this podcast is based on, I have a um, you know public Google spreadsheet where artists can load all their revenue streams in, and that and I I built this spreadsheet like so it's not anything too wild or complicated, but it projects you know what the artists will make um, monthly and annually so they can plan and it can feel a little bit more like a real job. So on one hand, I know you have brilliant. Uh, data scientists, but on the other, to me, it's very simple. It's like that info is out there and then have your data scientists project it, you know, makes yeah. total sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we have about 10 full-time data scientists at this point and, you know, they're not looking at each individual deal, but they're constantly updating the algorithm that sits behind this and just making it more and more accurate. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a plus and a minus to it, Emily, right? Some artists are sort of horrified by the the small number we in their mind, small number we show them because in their mind, well, I'm worth a million dollars or, you know, they, they, and that's part of being an artist, right? You have to believe you're worth a fortune because otherwise you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning to be an artist. But we are saying that this is the money that within 95% confidence, we know you will earn back during the time period that we're offering it to you. So start small. Like don't, you know, even if we, well, by the way, we are under sort of very strict terms of from our investors of how we can invest the money. And it is only according to the algorithm. So just to any artist out there who doesn't like the number we're showing you, uh, it's not, we, we didn't, it's not a choice, right? We do, it's the algorithm produces the number and that's the number and that's kind of where we are. But I'd really encourage them to think about like, what can you do if it says $5,000 or $10,000? There's a lot you can do with that, right? There's a lot of people who, who, who figured out how to build their career and can go and take the next steps with that kind of money. And isn't it much better to know you'll almost certainly have, have to be in a recouped position, in other words, to earn back your advance in one year or two years or three years or however long you take that deal, then get a giant check from someone, but possibly never, ever make it back again.
0: Exactly. And really, it's just math. You know, like I hear from, not to digress too much, but I hear from artists all the time, like, Oh, if I can just get a booking agent, then I'll get on the road. And I'm like, well, what are your hard ticket counts where you live? And what are your hard ticket counts in, in surrounding cities? Because booking agents are going to expect you to draw, you know, a few hundred tickets, even 500 or more where you live. They want to know what's going on elsewhere. Right. So it's not that, uh, booking agents don't love music, but it's ultimately, it it comes down to how many tickets do you sell, you know, at the end of the day. So it's, it's the same thing here.
1: Um yeah and and just to that point I do think it's tough for artists these days it used to be now the the plus side is anyone can get started right anyone can upload a track to distrokid if it's genuinely the greatest song that's ever been made there's a decent chance that it will find its way up the pile right but artists need to be business people as well now because you've got to start your career And to start your career, you got to have a business mind. And it used to be the only thing you worried about was getting signed. Once you were signed, you could sit back and people would take care of everything for you. Now to even even have a chance of getting signed or getting an advance from us or anything else, you've got to have built your career to a certain point. And I think it's really tough because I think the sort of person who makes the best music is probably unlikely to be a great business person, right? So I, I don't know. I just you know, if I, I understand and, and sympathize with what artists have to go through now. But but then again, there is that opportunity that, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people are making a living from their music now, which, you know, 20 years ago, there were only a few thousand people making a living from music.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I didn't set out to be an author. Um, this podcast came naturally out, out of my hit book where I was just having the same conversations with artists over and over. So, you know, hopefully I've laid it out in a clear way. I think the book is like 150 pages and covers like from recording to release and creation to execution. Um, you know, this podcast season has been like 12 episodes. So the information is there. And then, you know, you, you said something really important. We constantly refer to chapter one and episode one, which is get your art together um, because it can be easy to get caught up in all these other steps, right? But if your art isn't amazing, which to me means like, are you making music that's true to your heart, your soul, your spirit, like that's what's going to authentically connect with folks, you know, for the long term. Um, but know that, you know, this information is out there. And then hopefully we're, we're laying it out in a, in a clear way. Right. Um, so how do you guys get paid? How does Bread get paid?
1: So we take it's it's the same sort of structure as a record deal. So sorry, let me back up a second and just say it's an advance, not a loan, right? Some people say, well, you're going to lend me money. And I say, look, I'm not being picky, but I don't, let's not use the term loan because it's not a loan. And it, there, there's two important ways it's not a loan. One is a loan. Generally, generally, you will have some personal liability for, right? So you you are responsible for paying back that loan. If for some reason your streaming disappears, that it, then we're coming after you, or well, we're not because there is no personal liability. And the second is that a loan comes with an interest rate, and an interest rate means if the repayments slow down, in other words, if your streaming slows down, the amount you owe can go up, right? Because the interest keeps building up that amount when it's not being paid down fast enough. Again. Don't we're not alone, we don't make a loan, so there is no interest rate. And so the amount you owe us can never go up. So that's just to clarify what it's not. what it is is basically a revenue share, and that's the same structure as a record deal, but but at a more favorable uh share to the artist. So let me try and explain that. Typical record deal, from my understanding, I've never signed one, but is is the the royalty rates are sort of in the 14 to 20 percent range in the artist's favor, is my understanding. So if the artist Sells music, uh, a dollar of income comes in, the label is getting, you know, 80-ish percent of that, and the artist's getting 20%, assuming they're recouped, right? If they're not recouped, that 20% is going towards recruitment. Um, our deals range anywhere from in the sort of 90% range on sort of one-year deals, tend to be around 90% revenue share in favor of the artist. Uh, two-year deals about 80%, three-year deals about 70%, five-year deals about 60%, and the longest an eight-year deal about well, will never go below 51% in the artist's favor. So essentially, when a dollar comes in from their distributor, whoever that distributor is, part of that dollar is going towards recoupment. It could be that 60, 70, 80, or even 90% is going towards recoupment, and then the balance is coming to us. So think of it simply on a one-year catalog-only deal. It's normally around about a 90% royalty rate. So 90 cents of every dollar that's earned is going towards paying back the advance and 10 cents is coming to us.
0: So the longer you sign up for the more the higher cash advance an artist uh can get.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So everything's a trade-off, right? So so the algorithm produces all these different outputs and it's a it's a pretty simple system I think we've built most artists, you know, self-serve of the 650 odd deals we've done. We've probably only spoken to a third of those artists. The others have just come to the platform and helped themselves. But we end up giving them some sliders to move around. The first slider is they pick what music they want to include in the deal. It can either be just their catalog, which means anything they'd release in the future is 100% theirs, or they can add five new songs to the deal or 10 new songs to the deal, which various other options we give them. Second choice they make is how long they want the deal to be. And they can pick a one year, a two year, three year, a five year or an eight year term. And the third is, do they want to keep some of their income? And we let them choose in 10% increments whether they want to retain some income. So let's think of an artist who's making, I don't know, $10,000 a month in streaming income, but they need $2,000 a month to pay their rent, or they choose to keep 20% of their deal. The point is, where they have those sliders, every time they make a choice, the numbers that we're offering change. So the dollar amount could go up, the royalty rate could go down, all these things, everything is a trade-off basically. And it all calculated by the algorithm. Just important to say, we're actually projecting on a track by track basis. So we we make a projection for every single track in the artist's catalogue and how it's going to behave. And then we amalgamate that into the offers that we're making specifically for the artist. So, you know, some artists go from a one year offer to a two year offer and the number they're seeing almost doubles because we're projecting their catalogue is going to be very stable. Others, if the if the tracks are very new and the degradation hasn't really hit yet, they might go from a one year to a two year and only see one point six times or one point seven times because we're forecasting much steeper degradation. Some artists add new tracks into the deal, and it can more than double the value of the deal because we're forecasting very strong performance by those new tracks. Other artists add new tracks, and we might only add you know a couple of thousand dollars. That's just it's not a comfortable moment when I'm on a call with an artist and that happens, but that's the algorithm saying. All the data I have says your new music is not going to perform well, but that that's just science, you know. And and I do we do occasionally get people who say, well, but you need to believe in me. I say we we don't beat bread doesn't operate from belief, right? Record labels do, and r people do. That's their entire job is to believe what's going to happen. We don't have any beliefs here. We just look at the data and the science. Like I said, we've proved over more than six hundred deals that we're accurate to within four percent in general and we're going to be wrong on some right but 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 you know the the ones that take longer to recoup okay we're going to make a little less money on those deals and the ones that recoup faster actually that will just if the artist recoups before their deal's up then they're going to have the majority of the income actually coming to them for the remainder of the deal so
0: that's right and any artist can go to beatbread.com and play around with the sliders right and figure out what the, roughly what their advance from you all would be
1: yeah. So we have a minimum. Um, it's not a very clear line because it depends a lot on momentum and things. But in general, think about 10,000 monthly listeners on Spotify or about 80 to $100 in monthly streaming income. Those are the sort of, if you're hitting either of those two, you'll probably see an offer from the system. And if you don't, you'll get an email saying, you know, unfortunately you don't quite meet our criteria yet, but that that's that's sort of where the where the system starts to see enough information to generate
0: an offer. Gotcha. And then um, the percentage of revenue that you take, that's from both streaming and Sound Exchange, I believe?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's two income streams from Sound Exchange. There's the creator side and the copyright holder side. We just take the copyright holder side from Sound Exchange. Now, I would say for a a big chunk of the artists we fund, it's not relevant, right? Sound exchange is paying out from SiriusXM plays and Pandora plays and a couple of other things. You know, we're funding lots of artists who aren't troubling those services at all. So that's not not something they're giving up. But yeah, so streaming is really the, the bulk of it. And to that point, just to mention the other side of it. So we don't touch publishing. We don't touch merch. We don't touch sync. We don't touch touring. We don't touch any of those things you go we don't even touch physical, right? So if you took the advance from us and used it to go press up a bunch of vinyl and sold the vinyl, we're not touching that income either.
0: Yeah, and just to highlight on the recording end, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, You know, if artists are selling music through their website, if they're selling bundles, if they're selling on Bandcamp, you guys don't touch any of that.
1: Right, correct.
0: Excellent. So you've touched on this a little bit. Um, I mean, not specifically what I'm about, about to say first, but the end of this question. Um, so artists are often frustrated by streaming payments. And your website discusses getting an advance up to eight times artists' annual streaming income. So here's the part you've touched on, but I'm, I'm curious for some more. What are some real world examples you've seen on how artists and their teams are utilizing BeatBread bread advances? What are they using the money for?
1: I mean, we kind of almost everything you can think of, right? And, and now, I don't know that much about it, Emily, because we don't ask and we don't have any rules about what you can and can't use it for. But just anecdotally, I can tell you about the artist who moved from, I think, one of the Dakotas to Nashville. He was desperate to relocate to Nashville because he knew that's where songwriters were. So he took the advance and used it to move across the country. We've seen fairly big name uh, pop stars or certainly You've had top 10 hits use it to buy out of their of their record label contracts. We've seen an artist come and just specifically go make videos and do marketing to build their profile up. So they did get signed by a major record label, but on a, on a deal that they knew they never would have got where they were at. They built their their profile up to, to a point that they had so much more currency when they went in to negotiate and got a much better deal than they would have had. Um, we've seen people make videos. We've seen people have studio time, um, you know, all the things you can imagine an artist is going to do to develop their career and other things. And, and, you know, we've had one or two since I went and, you know, bought, had a little shopping spree and felt good about myself. And that's, that's okay too.
0: Definitely. I love the first example too, because it's, that's like a personal professional hybrid. It's like, I'm going to move, which is a major life decision, but I'm going to move to arguably the songwriting capital of the universe. So. Right. Very cool. So you might be the first ever music platform where artists and their teams can customize their contract term length, content, and monthly income letter, levels. To me, you're solving a real problem instead of being a, quote, one size fits all solution when every career and every artist is, is different. So so what led to this approach? You know, because it's one thing to negotiate a major label deal or, or something like that. But um, yeah, I, I just think it's it's so unique how, how you're approaching these terms.
1: So I think if if BeatBreads anything, it's a lucky combination of brilliant data scientists, Um, me, the guy that knows you know a lot about the music business, just having done it for a long time, and Peter, who's really a a consumer marketer at heart. Right, he just thinks, what does the consumer think? What does the consumer want? That's that's been his whole life of startups. uh, Right, they've all been consumer facing. Um, and so, I think if you just approach it from that end, just start thinking: there, well, what does an artist want? What does an artist need? Well, you don't actually know what they want or need, right? So, the best thing to do is just give them choices. Yeah, I, I think the the answers as simple as that. Start start from the artist centric view of of what is what will be most useful to them. And we we believe, and the evidence shows that we're right that the most useful thing to them is a lot of different choices. About the kind of deal they're going to take, maybe they only need a small amount of money, and maybe a one-year term is just great, and that gets them where they need to be. Maybe they need the maximum amount of money they get they can get, and an eight-year term is is more suitable for them. Or maybe it's something in the middle. Maybe need to, they need to retain some of their income. Maybe they're happy to give up their future work. Maybe they want to keep the future work for themselves. You know, these are these are the choices we let them make. And so far, where their reaction seems to be pretty pretty good.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I love it. So, is there an ideal beat bread artist? You know, size wise, genre wise.
1: Um, no, no, we're we're pretty open house. Like I said, we have that minimum um, of about ten thousand monthly listeners on Spotify. And by the way, we don't only look at Spotify data, but that's just the easy, convenient sort of way to categorize that. Um, but we, fu- we fund we funded people on I think all six continents already. Um, we funded, you know, hard rock, we funded gospel, we've actually funded a couple of companies who are making sort of lullaby music for babies, which, you know, never gonna get signed to a record label in a million years because it's that very sort of esoteric thing. Um, we funded, you know, teenagers, we funded people in their 50s and 60s. We like like I say, we don't, you know, there's the 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 system doesn't look at your age or your your um your geography or your genre or any of those things and and certainly we're never going to tell people how they should look or what kind of music they should make you know there's no a&r people here it's all it's all done on the data science. so no uh, other than that minimum the ideal bread client is an artist that has streaming income and needs some working capital that's that's, that's all i can tell you
0: well and you know when you're getting pushed back once in a while from artists that are like i'm i'm worth more or whatever like I'm all about things that make sense, you know? And so you guys are just like, here's the facts, here's the math, here's the information. It doesn't mean, you know, we're not fans of you and aren't going to put you on our personal playlist. But, um, you know, I you've seen it a million times too, I'm sure. It's just like, I've seen too many artists, you know, put their career on kind of the music business credit card. And then if they don't recoup or it doesn't work out, then they, they have nothing, right? So right. instead of you know, I'm, trust me, I'm all for betting on yourself, but ultimately you're speculating with that old school model. And here, like I said, you've done a much fancier version than the revenue spreadsheet that's in the book. This podcast is based on, but like I said, I understand it because I made that Google spreadsheet. Right. So it's just like, I, all I'm saying is like, plug in your numbers and it's going to project, you know, what you can count on, you know, monthly and annually. doesn't mean you're not going to get bigger. Um, so yeah, I absolutely love that.
1: Right. And 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 two points, Emily, to that to that idea. One is we've already refinanced about fifteen percent of our deals. So artists yeah. who've taken the money and invested it and it's gone really well and their streams have picked up, they've come back to us and, and said, you know, can I refinance this deal? And the answer is is always yes, if the numbers bear it out, right? So we rerun their numbers and look at what they need to pay off the existing deal and then project forward and all of those things. So that that's one point. The other is it's it's sort of just coming out of beta at the moment, but we, and you mentioned it in the intro, this idea of our investor network. So yeah. this is much more at the moment aimed at, at artists on the bigger end, so artists who can qualify for an advance over $100,000 with us. Um, but maybe they've got some really exciting things coming up in the future that our algorithm can't capture, right? Now, what do I mean by that? If you, I always joke to people, you know, if you tell me Beyonce is featuring on your next single and you're headlining Coachella next year, right? Well, this year it would be. Our algorithm can't capture that at all. So yeah. what we do in that case is encourage you to go to the investor network. The investor network is a network of distributors and high net worth individuals who invest in music. It's not the fan funding model in any way, shape or form, right? The minimum investment is thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, but those people will look at an individual deal and put their own valuation on it, right? Because they are using some human judgment on top of what the beatbread bread judgment says. What we allow with the investor network is the artist to set a minimum they will accept. So let's just imagine on a three-year catalog-only deal, we've offered them hundred thousand dollars, and they say, "Well, that's not enough. I, you know, I just I need more than that." And uh, you know, I've got these these five things are happening. I've got a new manager who's amazing, and here's his track record. I'm doing all these tour dates. I've got these videos coming out. I've got all these things that mean my catalog is going to grow much more than you guys are projecting. So, okay, so you tell us the minimum you're willing to accept. And there's a bit of sort of back and forth. We try and advise them, you know, don't go too high. but but uh, And also, we don't share that number with the investors. So actually, you, there's no kind of gain to be had by saying a really high number. You just want to kind of say the minimum number you'll accept. But let's say the artist says, okay, I need at least $125,000. We say, okay, we go out and provide all the data to the investors. Like I say, we don't tell them what the artist is looking for um and then the, the investors and the distributors will and they can bid on fractions of the deal so none of them's having to put up the full amount and if they get to a certain amount of the deal then our institutional capital will come in and make up the difference and if we get to the minimum that the artist set then they do have to take the deal and often we'll go past the minimum they've set um and if we don't hit the number they can walk away so you know for 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 like i say and these aren't huge artists by the way that are qualifying for hundred thousand dollar advances there's, there's you know we be we do six-figure deals every week at this point it's not uncommon at all um but we do have that facility now of these investors will come in and place some subjective judgment on top of our algorithm um and help to get artists more if they if they're looking for more and if they need more
0: fantastic and there's more info on uh about that on your website as well yes um yep. just letting folks know that because i found that really interesting um, so if I'm an artist and I want to sign up with BeatBread, do I have to give you my full catalog and all future releases or how does that work?
1: No, it, you have sort of complete choice there, right? So the first deal is catalog only, but catalog only doesn't mean all of your catalog. You could, we have actually done a couple of deals just on one track, believe it or not. It's really up to you again, you know, the more you, the more you pledge, the more, in, the more, the bigger the advance you're going to get. But if you have, one catalog that's with an independent distributor, and then one catalog that's with a label that you can't use. That's fine. We can just we can make calculations against the one the one album that's you know on the independent distributor. So it, it's really up to you to choose which tracks are included and which tracks are not included. It's also a hundred percent up to you whether you include any future work in the deal or not.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I like that people can mix and match. Like, hey, I could use it in advance for my catalog, but I'd love to keep this income rolling. You know, for some new music I'm putting out. So you know, it's whatever is best, you know, custom and best for each artist. That's really cool. Yeah. So what happens to the artist royalties after the advances recoup? Say I get a $10,000 advance or something. I recoup that. Then what happens to my money, you know, through CD Baby, DistroKid, whoever my distributor is?
1: Yeah. So, so uh, if you, if most of our deals, I'm happy to say recoup about where we predicted. So if we said it's a one-year deal or a two-year deal or a three-year deal, they recoup pretty much around the end of the deal. And then their income stream reverts hundred percent back to them. There's two other cases, right? One is that they're not recouped at the end of the deal. And then we actually just go on collecting the royalties literally day by day until they are recouped. So if you come to the end of your two year term and you're still rec- unrecouped by a thousand dollars, maybe we need to recoup for 10 more days or 14 more days or whatever that is. We, we just continue recouping. I would always point out that's become a less profitable deal for us, right? We, we're Money, the cost of the money is the most uh, biggest part of our expense. And so, if you artists have had our money for longer and you take longer to recoup, then it's become a less profitable deal for us. The point being, we don't say, "Oh, it's a two-year deal," but we, go, well, we actually know it's going to be a two and a half year deal. We that deal will be actually more profitable for us if it recoups early, and we'll deliver the profit we expected if it recoups on time. If it if it takes longer to recoup, it's actually become less profitable. So we always, you know, hope artists are going to recoup in time. If they recoup before the term is ended, then whatever that royalty rate was that we were quoting, so if 70% of the income is going towards recoupment, at the point they recoup, that 70% will then get paid to the artist until that three, two-year or three-year or four-year, whatever it is, term is over. And then again, 100% of the income reverts, reverts back to them.
0: Very cool. And so say I'm an artist and I've gotten an advance for my catalog and some new tracks, but then I go on some sort of like, recording writing frenzy or collab frenzy or something is that also a part of the refinancing can i come back to you and be like by the way i'm gonna release 100 more songs in the next year or something or 10 if, more or it
1: it it really is going to depend emily on every single situation all yeah. our deals need to have some catalog in them so if you just show up with a bunch of new music that wasn't included in the first deal we probably can't advance against that because you've already pledged your catalog um, but if releasing some of those new songs has caused everything to lift and then, or you didn't have new music in the, in the original deal. And now you're, you know, the new music is coming and it's caused things to take an uptick and there's new music now to pledge. It's, it's worth talking to us, right? That Every situation is different, but we can normally find a way to make something work.
0: Well, it sounds like regardless, just inform you guys what's going on, right? Because you're also evolving and growing and creating new opportunities. So like anything... Right. Communication is queen, you know, let you guys right. know what's going on and, and see if, um, you know, see if it makes yeah, sense. Exactly. To to exactly. As well. um, so last question before I ask a few questions about your career specifically, um, I saw something about partners on your website. Can you explain what you're looking for a little bit more as far as partners go?
1: Um, yeah, so we, we've partnered with a number of distributors and artist services companies. So we, we have this brand called Cordcash. Um, and if you go to, I don't know, United Masters or Symphonic or Too Lost or any of a bunch of other companies and, and see an advance offering or a funding product on their sites, that's actually our product. Rebranded, we call it white labeling. So we've rebranded our product to, to help, you know, lots of distributors make advances most of them only make bigger advances because it's just not worth them making the smaller advances because they're still doing it kind of manually and they need to get the accounts team and the business affairs team and everybody in a room and they need to look at a spreadsheet and they need to vote and decide whether it makes sense or not you know so we we help them out in that situation making uh, you know lots of smaller advances for them so that that's generally what a partner is so really a partner is is anybody who has a, a a, a flow of artists coming to them either looking for services or distribution or whatever those things are and might, those artists might be interested in advances then there's certainly um people we can talk to
0: that's great well it's working because we had christine barnum um chief revenue officer for cd baby on episode six of this season and she was singing all the beat bread praises um so we, we, would, we are
1: love- uh, yeah we're, we're we're working on a, co- a on a collab with cd baby right now
0: very cool. Well, she was already saying, go get your cash from, you know, Beat bread and then come distribute with us. I mean, she said it, more bit, but yeah, it was very cool. So as someone with a deep marketing background at major labels, I mean, you've developed worldwide campaigns for international artists like Pharrell, the Beastie Boys, Nora Jones, Katy Perry, 30 seconds to Mars and Lady A. How does it feel to have a hand in the, how does it feel to hand the power of control back into the hands of artists, especially when it comes to marketing?
1: Oh, wow. that's a, I've never been asked that before. That's a great question. In, I mean, look, in some ways it's extremely liberating, right? Because the, it is a constant source of conflict at, between labels and artists and managers that the artist manager rarely thinks you're doing a good enough job. You know, I've had times when we've been number one in 20 countries. Yeah, but we could have been number one in 25 countries. You know what I mean? So it's kind of, it's very liberating to be able to say to artists all the time, we're going to wire money into your bank account. And then apart from sending you a monthly report on how your recruitment going, we're not going to speak to you again, <laughs> right? So it's sort of liberating from that point of view. Um, at the same time, you know, I I miss I do miss being part of the decision making process and part of when a, when a team at a label sits around a table and takes you know let's, let's say relatively new artists and plots out how they're going to really you know make them into something big and I I was lucky enough to be there for the first Katy Perry album I was lucky enough to be there for the first album by the Killers you know to see an artist go from being literally unknown to basically a household name and being a part of it is it's it's exciting and it's fun um but i think it's getting much much harder um and so i'm sort of glad i don't have to do it anymore
0: (laughs) well you've really tapped into what the industry is now you know because like even big artists are niche and culty you know like i teach a um a college course on like concerts basically. And we just had a pretty big agent from CAA and it's like, you either know exactly who she's talking about or you have no idea who she's talking about. Right. right? And and even though they're huge artists that sell thousands of tickets, like, you know, that's what we were talking about with how the industry has scaled. Um, So yeah, I love that you're, you know, really in the sweets, the sweet spot for that.
1: Yeah. No. And just, just to, to, to that point, we made a $2 million advance to an artist last Friday, I've never heard of him.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent, exactly. And,
1: and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying I'm the world's expert on music, but I like music. I keep up to date with music. I, you know, yes. I read blogs, I read magazines, I listen, listen to different stations, I, you know, playlists, whatever, all those things. Yeah. Never heard of this guy. Two million dollars. Yeah. There you go.
0: I mean, I could never know all the artists just within the genres I've traditionally. Worked in, which is you know like so different from how you and I grew up, where right. music used to be finite and tangible, and so I thought I knew every artist and every genre. So, right, um, yeah, that's why it's all about. I mean, it's not like the sexiest thing, but like it's all about the math, people. It's all about the data. Yep. So. You have had very modern roles at major labels, including running direct-to-consumer campaigns for Billie Eilish, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, and The Weeknd, as well as lucrative subscription-based app services while at Disciple Media for Luke Bryan, Rufus Wainwright, Odessa. How did this mix of working with artists and cutting-edge technology set you up for your role at BeatBread? It's
1: a great question. I think it's just... It's just understanding different sides of things, right? I think in in any role in life, the more perspectives you have, the more equipped you're going to be to to have a thoughtful answer to things. And, and often realizing what you don't know is really important, right? And so when you switch, somewhat switch career, I mean, I've always been in music, but, but been on different sides of it and different aspects of it. Every time I've done that, I've got, oh, oh, <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff here I didn't know before. And now I do. So, you know, and, as I said, from Peter trying to take the the sort of consumer point of view or the musician's point of view, that's how we try and think here of always putting yourself in the other person's shoes of what they need and what's going to be useful to them. So I just think lots of different perspectives has been the most useful thing.
0: yeah, I love that, um, and I can tell because I feel like. Sometimes there's major label people that can be very like stuck in their ways. But then when I understood, oh, you did direct to consumer, you did subscription based, like that's a very modern way, um, you know, about thinking about things. But then also you have all, all that wealth of experience to bring into this new space. So um, they're, they're very lucky to have you. Um, so you're based normally in the New York area. Um, do you miss the UK ever? I know you've been in the US for a long time
1: i miss a few things about it i mean firstly i'm lucky enough for well for, for 15 plus years of doing international marketing i was traveling a lot and so i was there once a month ish anyway um new york and london are not that dissimilar you know i miss the bbc i miss there's a couple of supermarkets that i miss just because there's some certain silly products that right but but um but in general no that i yeah it's i i don't know it you know, I'm, I'm British. I, I, you can probably tell by listening to me. There, you know, I like football, the kind where you kick a ball with a foot, not you know, that other kind, you know, and uh, and and things like that. But it, I don't miss it enough to be thinking, when can I move back? On the other yeah. hand, if somebody offered me an amazing job in London, would I, you know, I'd be happy to go back. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a disaster. But I, but uh, yeah, I've been in the US for 22 years, and it's been very good to me. So no complaints.
0: You guys do have better basic grocery stores. I will give you. I mean, now we have like Whole Foods and stuff, but I, I was a total Anglophile growing up. So that my question wasn't totally out of uh, right. left field. Um, so, what have you been listening to lately?
1: Oh, gosh, what have I been listening to? Um, I always go blank when people ask me that. Um, what have I been listening to? Um, Casey Millsgraves is a, is a favorite of mine. Um, there's a, there's a, A DJ called Lane 8, who I'm like super into, who puts these four hour mixes up on SoundCloud every so often, which is just really, really great for working to. My son and I went to see Coldplay twice last summer, just because that's just an amazing stadium show. Um, This weekend in Florida, we were just at a music festival, which was a bunch of dance things like Cascade and Yotto and and stuff like that. Oh, Royal Blood, an English band, which is just two guys, a bass player and a drummer. If anybody hasn't checked them out and likes rock music, that's, that's super into Royal Blood. Um, what else have I been listening to? I don't know. That, that, is, that, is that a good enough list for
0: that's now? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to check out Royal Blood. That sounds awesome. I love it. Uh, well, Matthew, is there anything else you want to add about Beat Bread for artists or our industry audience or, or about your career?
1: No, I mean, all I'd say to artists, like I say, 10,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. If you've got that, just go check out your options at BeatBread, right? BeatBread.com. It'll take you literally a minute to put in your artist name and your email address. And then normally within 20 minutes or so, we're emailing you and you can come back and see a bunch of estimates. Please always bear in mind, they are estimates. It does say estimates on the site, but then you can upload your streaming reports. And then with a couple of days, we'll get you confirmed offers. Um, But yeah, always feel free to go and check it out. It is intended to be self-serve. Our YouTube channel's got tons of helpful videos and lots of testimonials from artists as well if you want to go check those out. Sign up for our Instagram account. We just passed 20,000 followers recently, which we're quite happy about. Um, and also keep an eye out for new developments. We're building new products, we're coming up with new ideas. So there's, there's hopefully always going to be something new in the future. Um, but yeah, and and then hello at beebread.com if you have questions.
0: Oh, very kind of you. Um, Well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time today and everything you guys are doing for artists. I really appreciate it.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Emily.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a wrap for this special episode with Beat Bread. Um, We may be doing one more special episode um, on production. How, How do you get into the live production space? Um, So we'll see if we do that. But otherwise, thanks again to my guest today, Matthew Tilly, Head of Artists and Industry Development at BeatBread. We will catch you next time.